0: Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the third chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, where we are going to be looking together at verses 11 through 26. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 26, you can find that passage on page 1072 in your pew Bibles, or even beginning on page 16, uh, if you have your Acts journals this morning. And allow me to take just a moment this morning to remind you of where we last left off in this third chapter of the book of Acts. A couple of weeks ago, we looked together at what really was the first of the apostolic miracles here as Peter, through the power of the risen, resurrected King, the Lord Jesus Christ, heals this man in the courtyard of the temple at the gate called Beautiful. We mentioned, we believe, it was probably the the Shushan Gate, which would have been the most elaborate of the gates of the temple and would probably have experienced the most traffic. And So this lame man who we know from the narrative here, who was lame from birth, lame from the time of being in his mother's womb, now somewhere around 40 years old, was there at the gate daily, begging alms, From all of the temple goers. As I mentioned to you before, we simply cannot afford to miss the providence of Almighty God here. This event sets up the sermon that we're going to be looking at this morning, given by Peter as a direct result, a direct response even, to this miraculous healing. Peter and John walk by this man as undoubtedly they have many, many times before, But this time, something's different. This time, Peter's attention by the grace of God, through the providence of God, is now drawn towards this man. Peter sees him through the power of the Holy Spirit. He recognizes that this man, on this day, is to be a recipient of the wonderful grace of Almighty God. I'm not going to rehash the whole story again this morning, beloved We know what happened. Peter healed him. He said to the man, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Life was immediately restored into this man's dead limbs. And Luke tells us he began walking and leaping and praising God. God's wonderful providence. We can't miss it. And it shows to us the providence of God in more ways than one. To be sure, it was the providence of God for this man suffering in a broken world, in a broken body, experiencing the curse of sin in his life. What was dead now had life. Muscles and limbs that were long gone were now active For the first time in 40 years. However, this man is not the only one who benefits from this healing, is he? Or I should say, he's not the only one affected by it. This event sets up the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This miracle is the wonderful, gracious provision of Almighty God to call His people God will restore much more than just dead limbs on this day. As a result of this event and the gospel being proclaimed, some 5,000 souls will come to know the sweet love and forgiveness of their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on this day. God's gracious provision to those who are being called by Him towards the King And his kingdom. But even they are not the only ones affected. Others will hear this same message. And a clear and violent opposition. Will begin to present itself as a result of their hatred for the message. We will be seeing that opposition on a regular basis. From here at this point all the way through the rest of the book of Acts. Acts. We also saw in this event the compassion that the work of the Holy Spirit through the gospel had begun to blossom in this young church. Peter and John have compassion, real compassion on this man. They see the brokenness of sin all around them and they are moved to action because of it. Jesus truly is the restorer of all things. We know that one day he will come again to make all things new. Sin and pain and death and sickness and trouble will be done away with forever. But now, there is mercy for the broken. And that mercy is to be on display in the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It must, by nature of what it is, be merciful. Not simply in theory, you understand, in action. You know, we notice right away, these apostles in the first church are willing to get their hands dirty. They're willing to get involved to bring relief amid so much brokenness. Much like their Savior was. And beloved, we need to see these things because the truth is That you and I need to learn to trust Jesus Christ, the risen King. Because it is the only way that we will ever live in this world not dominated by our fears. We've not been left in the dark regarding the purpose and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's moving all things, working all things together for the good of those who have been called. God will move heaven and earth to bring his children home. God is for us. Do you believe that this morning? God will certainly take care of us. We belong to him in Jesus Christ. And scripture gives us example after example of that wonderful truth. The final point we looked at together was that we are being conditioned here in the book of Acts, to see the Bible, to see the word of God as the apostles themselves had learned to see it through the teaching of the resurrected Christ. I mentioned to you that as these miracles take place, we find some of them very familiar. And here specifically, we were reminded of a couple of different places in the word of God. I mentioned to you that in Matthew chapter 11 we find John the Baptist in prison. And he's heard the reports of all that Jesus was doing and how his reputation, even his notoriety, were growing and many were flocking to him and following him. And John begins to worry. What if he's not the true one? What if he's not the Messiah that we have been waiting for? And in his fear, he sends a couple of his disciples to put the question to Jesus, Are you him, or do we need to get busy looking for another? What does Jesus say? Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. These are the things that you should be looking for, he's saying. These are the signs that indeed the Messiah, the Savior has come. And it makes our minds go to that day in the synagogue when Jesus stood up in his hometown synagogue in in Nazareth. And he is handed the scroll and he reads from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. And he declares to all of them, today in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. I am he. This is the Messiah. He has come, he has suffered, he has died, he has arose, he's now ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father where we're told he's ruling and reigning over all things until he comes again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth and make final and full restoration. Of all that is his. And it's with all that in mind, beloved, that we now look together at this sermon that was the result of this healing. Given in response to this crowd by Peter. So if you've not already done so, please make your way with me to chapter 3 and uh, follow along as I read verses 11 through 26. Hear now the holy and errant and infallible word of our Lord. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? He he has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, And be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful this morning to come before your word. We pray that you would take away those things that distract us, that we would give our full attention to the holy word of God this morning, so that hearing these things, we may be transformed more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can probably just imagine this scene. That unfolds here in the temple courtyard following this miracle. This man, lame from the time of being in his mother's womb, has been walking and leaping and praising God before the eyes of all the people. People who are very, very familiar with him. And now we find this man sort of understandably clinging to Peter and John as they make their way from the gate into that courtyard of the temple. The people who are eyewitnesses to this miracle are sort of pushing their way in and they're causing a stir. They're causing a commotion as they enter what is known as Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch, as the New King James, trans- James uh, translation translates it here. It was simply a colonnade that ran along the east side of the court of the Gentiles. And as Peter and John in this newly restored man are making their way, the people begin to throng in and, a and mass There's this large crowd sort of waiting to see what's going to happen next. Some of them undoubtedly are trying to wrap their minds around what their eyes have seen and not coming up with an explanation or at least a logical explanation for any of it and all eyes are beginning to move on from this man who has been miraculously restored and they're beginning to fall on Peter and John the ones who at least appear to be responsible for this miracle and Peter instantly takes notice he sees the minds of the people working He sees their eyes turning towards him and John. He sees, as Luke tells us here, the misplaced amazement in their eyes. And so he responds to it. He says, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look so intently at us, at me and John, as though through our own power or godliness we have somehow made this man walk? And I know I've said it many times now, but Peter is indeed a changed man through the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the work of the gospel to his heart. And we have to see that, right? Because that's what this is. This is real gospel humility. Here is a chance for Peter to sort of stand up to redeem himself, to take At least some of the glory for his gospel labors. But he doesn't. He sees their eyes beginning to look at him in wonder. And in essence he says, brothers, what are you doing? Don't do this thing. Do you honestly believe this was us? Or this was me? Have you witnessed anything that has been going on in and around Jerusalem over the last several years? This is not us. This is not a sign that we are somehow without sin or somehow harnessing godly power within ourselves. We are but vessels, conduits of the power of King Jesus. This is not us, it is Him. Look at what Peter does here. He takes them back to Bible school. Do you see that? Look at verse 13. Who is responsible for this if not Peter and John? Peter says, I'll tell you who's responsible. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Again, I know, beloved, that I sound like a broken record up here. But I'm going to say it again anyway because it's true. We are only just barely scratching the surface of this amazing passage of Scripture here this morning. and So as always, I encourage you to take some time today or the week ahead to look further into these things because I want to tell you something. This is biblical theology and gospel gold here in this passage. I said that Peter takes this crowd to school or to Bible school at the very least And he does it in more ways than one. He points the people back to their fathers, the patriarchs, back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, this is the work of their God. The God of our fathers. The God that you are on the way right now in this moment to worship. That God. The God. The true God. It is he ...who glorified his servant, Jesus. And understand that this is a loaded sentence to be sure. Jesus is not another God... ...from the God you know and are here to worship. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the servant... ...whom God, almighty God, glorifies. And I want you to understand... Peter knows his bible. That much is inescapable here in these early chapters of acts. He is once again looking back to the prophet Isaiah. We can see here through his tying of Jesus Christ to the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. First Isaiah 52 verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled very high, just as many were astonished at you. So his visage was marred more than any other man, and his form more than the sons of man. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. What they had not heard, they shall consider. Which, of course, leads us then right into Isaiah 53 which we already read this morning, the suffering servant. This servant of God is Jesus Christ. So before Peter opens up a very stiff rebuke for the people's sin, he tells them that though the sin is theirs, though they are responsible for that sin, Though their sin was certainly involved in the suffering of this prophetic servant of the Lord King Jesus, God's sovereignty is bigger than all of it. And we need to see that. Look at the second half of verse 13. This Jesus whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate. When he was determined to let them go, you denied the Holy One and the Just One and you asked for a murderer to be handed over to you. And you killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. Ouch, right? That's a pretty serious charge. Beloved, do you feel the weight of this rebuke? I want you to think about what Peter is saying to this crowd. He's saying, listen to me, this miracle, this this healing is not the work of any man. And certainly Peter felt the sting of his own words, his own rebuke here, regarding their denial of Jesus Christ before Pilate. This miracle is the work of King Jesus. He is the restorer of life. He is the one who came to restore the broken things, living under the curse of death. This Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke to you and our fathers of. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy, the restorer of life. He is the grand subject of all of Scripture. He suffered at your very hands because God willed it so. He had to suffer. He would bear their iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison to judgment, and who will declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Again, early on in the book of Acts, Peter is saying, listen, this is him. He is the one, and faith in his name is exactly what restored this man. Faith which comes through Jesus Christ has given this man the soundness that you all see. Now maybe you're thinking, Peter, I'm not sure this is a very good evangelistic strategy, right? You have offended the masses undoubtedly with these words. It's not enough that Jesus suffered and died. He did it at their hands. But now you're going to have to deal with who this Jesus truly was that they had been so complicit in the death of. I mean, come on, Peter, read the room, right? Why is Peter being so hard on them? Has he grown bitter over their taking the life of his closest friend, his master? Is he trying to hurt them? Is he trying in some way to destroy their peace? I think perhaps he is trying to destroy their peace, but only because it is a false peace. They had found peace, at least in their own misled minds, in doing the great work of God in killing Jesus Christ. Peter will rightly, I think, lovingly destroy that piece. Why so heavy-handed? Because Peter is giving them the bad news. You understand? And let me be crystal clear here. What Peter is saying is true of these people. These Jews in the temple. It's also true of Peter and the other apostles. And it's true of us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. I want you to understand, beloved, we are included in this indictment. Our sin was there as Jesus hung upon the cross in our place. Again, I need to stress that Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has been given understanding in these things. And he knows the Word of God. He knows Moses and the prophets. He understands the bad news, the the indictment that every man, woman, and child born after our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell in Eden, need Jesus. But look at what he does. He moves from the bad news... To the good news. Do you see that in verse 17? Those loaded little words. Yet now. The sweetest words we could ever hear. Considering the bad news. The bad news is not the end of the story. Praise God. The bad news. Is that we are surely guilty. But now. Yet now, there is hope. Yet now, brethren, right? Peter is using a term of endearment. Yet now, brethren, brothers and sisters, yet now, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of His prophets that the Christ would suffer, He has fulfilled. Praise God the suffering of jesus pointed him pointed to him as being the messiah the savior do you understand that he is the one and because he is the one peter tells them the good news repent therefore and be converted be in christ why that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send Jesus who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. I want you to understand, beloved, we are experiencing a time of refreshing in the presence of Almighty God this morning because of this Jesus. No one has the right to be here outside of the righteousness of Christ, but He has come, He has lived, He has died, He has rose again, and we live in that righteousness. It is our own. Do you hear the hope? In the words of Peter, here, Peter has told them that they are sinners, that their sins were not at all respectable. We need to see that. Like, you know, I think too often we try to convince ourselves that there are respectable sins. You know, there are Christian sins, sins that are nowhere near as bad as the sins of, you know, all of these other heathens all around us. My sins are nothing like the sins of, say, my co-workers or my family members, my brothers or sisters at church, my pastor. Right? And we hear that and we say, gross, right? That's not true. Self-righteousness is repugnant. I want to be clear. It stinks. It's awful. It's antithetical to the gospel. No, Peter lovingly tells them, listen, You killed Jesus. You murdered him by being complicit in his death. You have killed the promised one. You have caused the suffering of the Son of God. It's true. Praise God that you do not have to stop there. Now Peter says the time of salvation is here. Do you see it? There is no sin that the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ will not cover. So repent. Turn away from your ridiculous sin and run into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Even you who killed him. Do you see something of the, of the, the massive size of the grace of God here? Even you who killed the Lord, run to Jesus because he has life to give you. Run in your deadness and find life for your limbs. Run in your treachery and your brokenness. And find life and restoration in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter is making it clear that Jesus may be absent from them physically, but we need to understand that he's still very much at work. He's active for you right now. We need to see that. Peter says he's working at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven acting as your advocate. He will remain on his throne ruling and reigning until that time when he comes again in glory to restore all things. He points them to Moses. He said, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up another prophet like me from among your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things. And then there's a warning. The twofold work of the gospel in bringing sons and daughters to glory, even as it heaps condemnation upon those who hate God. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Repent and run to Jesus and find everlasting life and joy for eternity or live and die in your unrighteousness and rightly receive your just reward. But the time of running to Jesus is now. It's now. You understand, Peter's not trying some new tactic here. He's not trying to scare these people into Christ's kingdom. He's simply telling them what the scripture says. Either you have the righteousness of Christ or your righteousness is not enough. And beloved, I think we need to hear this. I want to I make sure we get this. Listen to me. Being here this morning or every Sunday for the rest of your life, it's not enough. It's not enough. I don't care how many years your family's been here. It's not enough. Growing up here will not get you eternal life. Being better than all of your friends at articulating reform doctrine will never save you. Because it's not enough. Serving the church better than everyone else around you will never, ever, ever save you. It's not enough. Having a clean and pretty life will never save you because it's not enough. Being different from the culture that surrounds you will not save you because it's not enough. It's not enough righteousness. Having a life of ease and health will not save you because it's not enough. Showing up for the sacrament this morning, it won't save you because it's not enough. Creating the church of your dreams here won't save you because it's not enough. Nothing that you do for God will ever be enough to save you. You must repent and run to the arms of Jesus. Wear His righteousness knowing that no other righteousness is good enough. And if you have it, you know that no other righteousness is needed. See the suffering prophet of Isaiah in Jesus Christ. See in Jesus the prophet whom God would raise up like Moses who will bring restoration to God's creation. See in Jesus the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. See in Jesus the subject matter of Moses and all of the prophets. And live united to his life, his death, his resurrection by faith. Faith that he so graciously gives. And turn from death to life. Peter ends his message with this hopeful statement. He, He looks at the people and he says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families on earth will be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquity. Beloved, do you hear the gospel hope? Peter takes this event where a lame man was healed of his infirmity and life was restored to his dead limbs, and he applies it to Jesus Christ as the restorer of brokenness that exists because of the curse of sin. He sees the providence of God in it to proclaim the glories of the gospel. He exalts and extols the king and his kingdom by tying together the prophets and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The true substance behind every shadow. And the hope of all who seek him amid so much death. It's a beautiful picture of the reason that we're here this morning. It's the hope of Christianity there are so many encouraging admonitions for us here, and I want to point out just a couple of them in closing. You notice that Peter does not stop at merely showing them that they are wrong. I'm going to criticize us here for a moment as Reformed people. I'm criticizing myself. Sometimes I worry about the way that we as Reformed people like to just prove people wrong. If you read Reformed people on the Internet, they're constantly proving people wrong. Too often we like to be defined by all of the things that we think we have right and everyone else has wrong. We like to define ourselves by all of those things that we are against. All the things that we find personally irritating about other people. So in this scenario, we would find Peter well within his rights to point out that these people do not know their Bible. They were ignorant that they were knuckle-dragging heathens who simply killed the Son of God out of their own brute stupidity. However, Peter comforts them with their ignorance. He says, you do not know what it was that you were doing. Turn from your sin and run to Jesus. How many of our debates end in that way? He shows them their error as a means of lovingly showing them Jesus Christ from the word of God. He's not there to win an argument. He's there to show them Jesus and his gospel. These fellow image bearers, some of whom will very soon begin to persecute Peter himself. They all need Jesus. And it's Peter's joy to show him to them. Beloved, is this your your approach? Maybe you think, you know what, Steve? No, because guess what? I don't argue theology with people like you do. That's your thing. That's what you do. That's what people like you do. Listen to me. You're still a theologian. Don't fool yourself. I don't care what your level of education is. You are a theologian every day of your life. You believe things to be true about God and his word and you act on those beliefs. So maybe you do not want to argue scripture or you do not want to argue the confessions, but you do have your own opinions, right? Not everyone meets your standards, right? You don't like the way they dress. You don't like the way they talk. You don't like their education. You don't like the way they parent. The way they lead or the way they fail to lead. Are your opinions, strong as they are, are they informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are they informed by the word of God? A good test would be to look at what lies beneath them. What's the end game? In scripture, the end game is always to get before everyone the Lord Jesus Christ. It's always the end game to bring even enemies to the gospel and hope that they will find salvation in Jesus. Does that inform your strong opinions this morning? Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ should always be a safe place, a place where the burdened and heavy laden can go and get to Jesus and find relief. And it began here in the first church in the book of Acts. And we'll see it again and again and again. By the grace of God, beloved, we should still be seeing it today. What makes up your mind this morning? What develops your attitudes and your actions? Do you think there is a separation between your salvation and the way you handle everything else in life? We need to reflect the love of Christ in our lives. We do that by knowing him through faith. And we know him because we know his word. Do you know his word? What priority does the word of God have in your life? Because you see here, it was everything to Peter. God has revealed himself in his word and clearly Peter cannot get enough of it. Can you? Can you get enough? Beloved, we're going to be faced with these questions again and again again in this book. And so my prayer for all of us is that we would take these things to heart. That we would turn from sin and run to Jesus. That we would be known for our love because that is exactly what the gospel does. 5,000 souls ran to Jesus on this day, the day that Peter is making these things clear. Opposition also arose. There will be persecution to come as a result of this life-giving gospel being proclaimed. But ultimately, no earthly thing will stand in its way or ever slow it down. Do you love the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? then may these things be true of us as we live our life before the face of our God, eagerly awaiting the final restoration of all things when Jesus, the risen King, comes again to take us home. Amen.